0: True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. A 10-year-old girl goes missing from her home. For two days, her parents search, hoping beyond hope that she's safe she's just wandered off and is somewhere waiting to be found. Then a horrifying discovery in the place that a child should feel the safest turns their deepest fears into reality and an investigation will reveal that a monster was hiding closer to home than anyone could have imagined. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht and you're listening to episode 53 The Murder of Shamonique Clarsen. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Kellyanne, Vicky Rapellis, Siabusa Ndidwa, Danya Tussan. Nadia Nagel, Ben and Lynn Stapelbach, Sarita Prella, Tammy Flynn, Lizelle Swart, Andrea Davidson, Cheryl, Yana DeToy, Marquita, Preeti, Venetia Pulsa, Jenny Fenter, and Chanel Thomas-Smith for your support on Patreon, as well as Kerry Radmall for her support on PayPal. Thank you so much, everyone your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. We also have two new ways that you can support the show. You can head over to Audible and purchase the Krugersdorp Cult Killings by Jana Marks, which I narrated, or you can get your health and beauty needs from King Online and get a 10% discount by using the code TCSA10 at checkout. We also have our amazing giveaway running with King online where if you purchase for 400 rand or more and use the TCSA 10 code, you get entered into the draw to win your share of 2350 rands worth of brand new true crime and crime fiction books. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, Inviting your friends and family to listen and interacting on social media all go a long way to keeping the show growing and improving. The case I'm covering today involves the abuse and murder of a child. I'm saying that up front because I know many listeners struggle with listening to content about children. If you feel that this will be too difficult for you to listen to, please give this episode a miss although covering cases like this is certainly no picnic for me either, I've always felt that the stories that are the most difficult to tell are the ones that are the most important to share. Chamonique's case also presents a few very important themes. Her savage murder shows us how domestic violence does not just represent a threat to the direct victim, the partner of the abuser, it also presents an enormous risk to all those close to the victim. In researching this case, I used the episode from the series Opsia Spur" as well as media coverage and the judgments and sentencing documents published on Safli. So let's get into episode 53, The Murder of Shamanique Clarsen. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Paul in the Western Cape is one of the most spectacular towns in the province. Like many others in the province, it supports a thriving agricultural community, and it's a stark contrast between the haves and the have-nots. The family of 10-year-old Chamonique Clarsen lived as many South African families do, with many generations of the same family on one property. The main house belonged to Chamonique's mother's aunt, and Chamonique... Her mother, Magdalene Clarson, her father, Sean Leavies, and her younger sister lived in a small structure commonly referred to as a Wendy house in South Africa on the property. Her older half-brother, Jacques, and her older half-sister also lived on the same property. Chamonique's older sister's name is withheld in court documents, and for ease of reference, I'll call her Hester, Life was difficult for the family, and with high unemployment rates in the country, work was difficult to come by. It is for this reason that these multi-generational dwelling situations have become so popular in South Africa. Those family members that are employed bring money into the household, and those that are not help to care for the children and work around the home with so many people that loved her around her. Chamonique should have been at her safest when she was in her home. And Chamonique was deeply loved. Magdalene describes her daughter in glowing terms. She was helpful and kind, and would often tell her mother that an elderly neighbour needed assistance, so she was going to help them with whatever they needed. The young girl, already deeply understanding the dynamics of poverty at such a young age, had told her mother that when she was older, she was going to work hard and buy her mom a house. Chamonique was never ashamed of her family or their circumstances. She would regularly invite friends from school around to their home to play. Martellien remembers once pulling her daughter aside and telling her that she should not invite the well-off children to their home. She was concerned the children would tease Chamonique at school. Chamonique had shrugged this off. She said that she loved her family and was happy with her home. She was not going to be ashamed about her circumstances. Chamonix's teacher and principal at Dalveda Primary School grow misty-eyed when they speak about the girl. Her teacher recalls how the child had leadership skills well beyond her age group, and she could always rely on her to keep an eye on the class if she needed to pop out for a minute. Magdalene recalls that in the final week of her daughter's life, she had suddenly decided that she wanted to be a model. Magdalene says that she'd wondered how she was going to afford dresses, hairstyling and makeup but with the help of neighbours and family members, they were able to dress the young girl up and give her a mini photo shoot. One of those photographs would become the centrepiece for her memorial. Hester Clarkson, Chamonique's older sister, was no longer living in the dream world of a child. She had long been exposed to the cold realities of the world. For the most part, it had been her relationship with her boyfriend, Jerome America, that had forced her to face these cold realities. Jerome America was born in Riberg Ves. He spent the first part of his childhood with his mother and then moved to Paul to live with his father. His childhood was not easy, and he is alleged to have stopped attending school in grade seven because he says he could no longer concentrate. Jerome met Hester Clarsen in 2012 and the pair immediately hit it off. They were soon dating, but it was not long before Hester realised that the man she was with was not an upstanding citizen. In 2012, Jerome was arrested and convicted for being in the possession of marijuana and also for housebreaking and theft. Both of these convictions resulted in non-custodial sentences. Not long after this, Hester discovered that she was pregnant with Jerome's child. They would welcome a little girl into the world soon after. Hester and Jerome's relationship was on and off for several years, even after the birth of their little girl. The main reason for this was that Jerome had started to assault Hester. In 2013, Hester took out a restraining order against Jerome, following an especially brutal assault. Sadly, as is often the case, after a few months of being apart, Jerome was able to convince Hester that he changed, and they started seeing each other again. The abuse, of course, did not stop, and Hester could not know this, but it was just the beginning of Jerome's violence. On the 6th of April, 2015, after a telephonic disagreement, Jerome had arrived at Hester's home with an axe. They were separated at this point, and Jerome told her that he wanted to get back together with her, and if she didn't agree, he would kill her. Their terrified daughter started to scream, and Jerome fled. The next morning, as Hester was on her way to work, Jerome approached her again armed with an axe, and told her to follow him. They were going to go for a walk to talk about their relationship, he said. He forced Hester into the bush area next to the road and over a railway line. He then struck her over the head with the handle of the axe and told her that he wanted sex. Terrified and bleeding from the head, Hester was raped by Jerome. He then made the woman give him money for cigarettes, and forced her to continue walking to a nearby river. He told Hester that he was not going to let her go, and if he could not have her, then no one would have her. He then raped her again. After this he threatened to kill her and throw her in the river. In an effort to calm him, Hester told him that she would go back to him if he stopped taking drugs and if he agreed to get counselling, he allowed her to return home. Hester told her mother, Magdalene, about what Jerome had done to her. It's unknown whether she mentioned the rapes. Her mother advised her to apply for another protection order against Jerome. The protection order process works in two stages. The first interdict is an interim issue, and both parties then have to appear in court for a magistrate to determine the validity of the claims before the order is made permanent. When Hester had first applied for a protection order in 2013, she had not followed up by attending court, so the order was not made permanent. After the 2015 incident, she did attend court, and Jerome laughed when she told the magistrate what he had done. Again, it is unknown whether Hester had only referred to the assault with the axe handle and the threats against her life, or if she had also admitted to having been raped. The protection order was granted, but Hester unfortunately did not lay charges. To be honest with you, I think that the issue here is that Hester, and perhaps even her mother, may not have seen what happened as rape. Sadly, there are still many misconceptions about what does and does not constitute rape. And for two women who had grown up in a community where partner-on-partner sexual violence may have been normalised, they may have thought that it was not rape, because Jerome was not a stranger, and Hester did not fight back. The law is very clear about this. Hester had sexual acts perpetrated upon her without her consent consent cannot be given if you are in fear of your life therefore whether or not she fought back means absolutely nothing neither does the fact that Jerome was at one time her partner Hester was raped twice any form of coercion in order to engage in sexual acts is rape Even if Jerome hadn't threatened her, even if he had just said to her, if you don't have sex with me I'm going to take all your money, that coercion takes away Hester's ability to truly consent to the act. When your ability to consent is removed, that constitutes rape. The judge in this case would have more to say about this matter as well, but we'll get to that a little later. At this point, Hester and Jerome are no longer together. She has granted a protection order against him, and they live separate lives. Jerome, of course, does not leave her alone. Jerome would continue to text Hester and attempt to convince her to continue a relationship with him. He had never contributed financially to the raising of their daughter. Hester had never wanted to apply for a maintenance order, because she was concerned this would give Jerome another entry point into her life. Hester worked and provided financially for her child. Sadly, as is so often the case with coercive control, Jerome managed to manipulate his way back into Hester's life in November 2015. He claimed to have cleaned up his act. He was off the drugs, he said. He was living with his parents, and looking for work. It was all a lie. When Jerome started seeing Hester again, the couple would sleep in a storeroom on the property so that they could have their own space. The storeroom was at one time filled with the belongings of the residents on the property, and it was cleared out slightly so that they could make space for themselves. The back of the storeroom remained cluttered with boxes and items of all description. In February 2016, Hester took her daughter to visit her aunt who lived on a farm in Pall. She left Jerome behind. They had been arguing and she needed space. On Saturday the 27th of February, Magdalene needed to go into town to buy a few items. Her partner Sean accompanied her and she left Chamonique and her younger sister in the care of her aunt who lived in the main house. Her aunt would later say that Charmonique had made eggs for herself for breakfast and then washed, dressed and lay down on the bed in the Wendy house for a nap. Her aunt took Charmonique's younger sister with her to visit the neighbours directly across the road. From where they sat on the porch, she had an unobstructed view of the Wendy house in which the ten-year-old was sleeping. She noticed Jerome America was going in and out of the Wendy house several times and picked up the younger girl to walk back to check on Chamonique. She found the girl still sleeping on the bed and laid her younger sister down next to her. When she walked out of the Wendy house, Jerome emerged from the storeroom and asked her for bread and money. The woman told him she didn't have any money but she gave him some bread. She then saw him walk out the gate and head toward the shop. She spent some time inside her house and when she came out, before heading back over to the neighbours, she checked on the girls again. Chaminique was gone. Around the same time, Magdalene arrived back at the property. Her aunt immediately told her that she could not find Charmonique. They started to search the property, looking under the beds and everywhere they could think to look. They called the child's grandmother who lived nearby, but she hadn't seen Chamonique either. The family's search for the girl continued through Saturday night. On Sunday morning, they visited the local hospitals to see if perhaps the girl had injured herself and been taken there. She was not there either. Chamounique's parents then went to the police station and reported the child as missing. Sunday the 28th of February was Chamounique's birthday. She was turning 11 and hoping beyond hope that they could find her safely that day. Magdalene's aunt asked Jerome America to prepare a braai and cook meat so that when they found Chamounique they could celebrate her birthday with her. Hester, having received notice that her little sister was missing, had returned from visiting her aunt on the farm and helped with the search. The family received several tips that Chamonique had been spotted in different places and using a neighbor's vehicle drove to each place, only to find it had been a case of mistaken identity each time. As the hours crept by, it became clear that Chamonique would not be coming home to celebrate her birthday with her family. Hester slept with Jerome in the storeroom that Sunday night. She recalls complaining of a strange smell, and Jerome told her it must be a dead mouse. She struggled to sleep that night. By Monday morning, Chamonique's frantic parents visited her school principal They wanted him to ask the pupils if they knew anything about the girls' whereabouts. Her classmates were questioned, but they knew nothing. The school helped the parents to create and print missing person posters. The rest of the day was spent driving around the area, putting up the posters and responding to more sightings, none of which panned out. By the time the parents returned home late that afternoon, Residents of the home were all complaining about a bad smell in the house. Magdalene remembers paying it little mind. A dead rodent was the least of her concerns at that point. Jerome America approached her and asked her for some of the posters that they'd made. He wanted to help putting them up, he said. Magdalene obliged and gave him a stack. The young man disappeared out the gate. Inside the main house, the search for the source of the increasingly overpowering smell was on. Magdalene's oldest son was tasked with finding the source, and he looked under one of the beds. He saw what he thought was a bundle of refuse bags, and went to pull it out. He soon realised the bundle had something inside it. Inside the plastic bags, wrapped in a blanket with string tied around her and a shopping bag over her head, was the body of his little sister. Magdalene was sitting outside when she heard screams from inside the house. She rushed in and recalls looking at the body on the floor. That February had been unseasonably warm and little Chamonique was already in an advanced state of decomposition. Everyone around her was telling her that this was the body of her child. The last thing she recalls about that moment was shaking her head in denial before fainting. This could not be her little girl. It was just not possible. As Magdalene's aunt looked at the blanket the girl was wrapped in, she realised that she had seen it earlier that day. When the first police officer arrived on the scene, She immediately told him that she was confused because Chamonix's body had definitely not been under the bed that weekend or that morning when she went to work and she had seen the blanket that the girl was wrapped in in the storeroom where Jerome America slept. Magdalene would later say that her oldest son, upon discovering his sister's body, had immediately said that it had to be Jerome that had done this. Magdalene was shocked he would say that. She knew the young man had his issues, but she could not imagine that he would do this horrific thing to her little girl. As police started to cordon off the scene, and the family needed to move off the property, the neighbours started to hear about what had happened. Mention was made of Jerome America's name, and Chamonique's brother's suspicions. Jerome returned from his flyer-posting trip to find the road swarming with police officers and an angry mob. Officers guarding the scene would take Jerome America into custody for his own protection as members of the community descended upon him, demanding answers, wanting to know what he had done. It's interesting to me that members of the class and family as well as members of the community, immediately suspected Jerome of this. They didn't just give him suspicious sidelong glances, they were so convinced that he was guilty within minutes of Chamonix's body being found that they were ready to beat him down. This is a heinous crime. It's not housebreaking or drug possession. Yet they knew it had to be him. For Chamonix, though, that knowledge came too late. Detectives would spend days at the crime scene. After searching the scene for obvious biological evidence, investigating officers Sergeant Willem Case, requested that canine officers attend the scene that were trained in the identification of the scent of human remains. It seemed clear that Chamonique had not been under the bed for 48 hours, and she had likely not been killed in the house. Scent dogs searched the property and alerted to the storeroom in which Jerome America had slept. A small amount of blood was found on one wall of the storeroom, which would later be determined to belong to Chamonique. Upon carefully removing the boxes and objects in the back of the storeroom, they discovered biological fluid from Chamonix's body on the floor. Orcase also found a knife and an old computer screen. Both items had blood on them, and it was later identified to belong to Chamonix. The storeroom seemed to be where she'd been killed and kept for the greatest part of the weekend. While Jerome America was certainly not the only person with access to the storeroom, he had been very guarded around the room over the weekend, the family recalled. He had been the only person in there on Saturday and Sunday. When family had knocked on the door, he'd opened it just a crack, and at one point, when someone had entered without his consent, he'd gone ballistic. Jerome America had an injury to his right hand, which was consistent with having cut himself on a knife. The clothing that Jerome was reported to have worn on the day of Chamonix's disappearance was never found. Sharmonique's body was removed and an autopsy performed while her community, family and school reeled in shock. Dr. Deirdre Abrahams, forensic pathologist, had initially attended the scene when Sharmonique's body was found. She would also conduct the autopsy on the child's body. Please be warned that the following details of Chamonix's injuries are difficult to listen to. Dr. Abrahams noticed that the decomposition of the child was well advanced at the time the body was found. The heat wave, as well as the fact that the body had been wrapped, would have accelerated decomposition, but she was able to determine that death had occurred approximately forty eight hours before the body was discovered. This was also confirmed by insect activity around the body. The body must have been uncovered at some point, she determined, because rodents had started to nibble at the child's fingers. Dr. Abrahams noted blunt force trauma injuries to Shamanique's skull, where she'd been struck with something heavy. There was a stab wound to her chest, but the eventual cause of her death had been strangulation. There were also injuries to both Chamonique's vagina and anus, which were consistent with forced sexual penetration. These injuries had been inflicted prior to death. The inside of Chamonique's mouth also presented with injuries which would be consistent with someone having forcefully held her mouth closed to prevent her from screaming. Jerome America was officially arrested for Charmonique's murder within days of her death. After the autopsy was concluded, the child's remains were returned to her family for burial. As the state prepared their case against Jerome America, they discovered the two protection order applications that Hester had made against him. As they questioned the young woman about her relationship with Jerome, she began to relay the events of April 2015. With Hester's consent the state added two counts of rape to Jerome's charge sheet for his attack on Hester. In late 2016 Jerome America went on trial. He pleaded not guilty to seven charges against him. He was charged with two counts of kidnapping one for forcing Hester to accompany him while he was armed, and the other for holding Chamonique captive. He was charged with four counts of rape, two for his attack on Hester and two for the rape of Chamonique, and he was charged with the murder of Chamonique Claussen. Jerome America did not enter a plea explanation. His defence was simply that he didn't do it. The state's case was strong from a circumstantial perspective. Although they did not have direct evidence to link Jerome to Chamonique's murder, the judge would say in passing down judgment that the mountain of circumstantial evidence proved that there was no other person that could be responsible for her rape and murder. The state believed that on Saturday the 27th of February, Finding himself alone on the property with Chamonix, and with the aunts being in the house for a period of time, Jerome America had lured Chamonix to the storeroom. Evidence was presented that he'd gone to the shop just before Chamonix disappeared, and I wonder if he didn't perhaps buy sweets or something else that would convince the young girl to go with him. When Chamonique was in the storeroom, the state believed that Jerome attacked her, covering her mouth with his hand so that she couldn't scream. It is possible that he knocked her unconscious, using the computer screen, before raping her twice. Then, realising he couldn't let her go, he stabbed Chamonique in the chest. When she did not die from this wound, he strangled her to death. It is believed that Jerome stored Chamonix's body in the back of the storeroom on Saturday, Sunday and Monday morning. She may have been wrapped in a blanket at this point, but her hands were exposed, allowing rodents to bite her fingers. The storeroom was the only place on the entire property that showed any evidence of rodent activity. Unknowingly, Hester Clarsen had slept in the same room as her deceased little sister on Sunday night. She had also slept next to her murderer. The state believed that on Monday morning, when most residents of the property went to work, and when Chamonix's parents left to continue their search for her, Jerome had removed Chamonix's body from the storeroom, wrapped her in refuse bags and a blanket, and placed a carrier bag over her head. He then pushed her body underneath a bed in the main house, where she was later found. Jerome America did testify in his own defence. His testimony was rambling and filled with contradictions. He could not explain how Chamonix could have been murdered and stored in the room, to which, by his own admission, only he had access on Saturday and Sunday without his knowledge. With regard to the attacks on Hester, he admitted that he had been armed at the time and that he had threatened Hester. Ridiculously, his defence against the sexual intercourse being rape was that Hester had removed her own clothing. Yes, that's right. Jerome America claims to believe that even if you are armed with an axe and you threaten a woman with bodily harm, As long as she takes her own pants off it's not rape. His defense attorney also continued this narrative when he cross-examined Hester on the stand. He claimed that the fact that Hester had not reported the rapes to the police and that she'd taken Jerome back was evidence that she was not really afraid of him. Judge Henney rubbished these claims as well as Jerome's testimony In his judgment, saying that Jerome very clearly viewed Hester as his property and not as a human being in her own right. He said that on the day of his attack on Hester, as well as throughout their relationship, Jerome had systematically robbed Hester of her human rights. The judge referred to research conducted into the damage that domestic abuse does to the psyche of the victim. He also said that from a societal perspective, the domination of men over women still featured extensively in communities, and this further disempowered women from taking a stand against abuse. The judge pointed out that just 20 years before, it had not been illegal for a man to rape his wife, and this misconception that partners cannot rape one another still remains deeply entrenched in community thinking. In discounting the defense's claims that Hester returning to her relationship with Jerome meant that she was not afraid, the judge pointed out that abused partners often find it difficult to leave abusive relationships for various reasons, including fear, shame, lack of resources, lack of finances lack of housing, children, feelings of guilt, promises of reform, sex role conditioning, societal acceptance and reinforcement of violence against women, and love for the spouse, as misguided as that love might be. The judge also acknowledged that the case before him was one that most courts will never see, because the vast majority of cases of spousal rape are not reported, and if they are, they don't make it to prosecution. He said that he did not see this as a reason to go easy on the accused. Rather, he wished to use the case to send out a message to all partners that spousal rape will not be tolerated, and to communicate to victims that they can come forward with these charges and they will be taken seriously. In December 2016, Jerome America was found guilty of all seven charges against him. During the sentencing portion of his trial, Chamonix's father testified to the deep pain and trauma that Jerome had caused their family. In a ridiculous attempt to get a lighter sentence, Jerome's attorney told the court that the man's daughter with Hester needed her father and that in sentencing him he should allow for the possibility that he could be an active part of his child's life in the future. The judge refused to take this as a mitigating factor, saying that Hester and her family were doing an excellent job of raising the little girl and Jerome had never contributed to the girl's upbringing even before his arrest. In addressing the murder of Shamunique Clarsen, the judge said, quote, It is only a coward and someone with no conscience who can act in such an inhumane manner. End quote. He went on to say that quote, the accused waited like an opportunistic predator for the deceased, a young, defenseless girl, to be left on her own, so that he could pounce upon her after which he committed these abhorrent, callous and horrendous deeds. In discussing the nature of Jerome's crimes against Chamonique, the judge said, It has almost become a daily occurrence in this country of ours that young children are brutally murdered after they have been sexually abused in a violent manner, as happened in this case. It is something that has to come to a stop, sooner rather than later. No self-respecting society can allow children to be killed and maimed in such a brutal manner. The accused has not only murdered this young child, but the soul and being of her parents and relatives. The court could feel the emotion and felt deep empathy for the hurt and sorrow they have suffered and that they are still trying to come to terms with this awful tragedy which was caused at the hands of the accused. Whatever punishment this court should impose will not and cannot make up for the deep loss they have suffered and are still suffering." With that, Judge Henney sentenced Jerome America to five life sentences one each for the four counts of rape, plus the murder, plus an additional six years for the two kidnapping charges. Magdalene Klarsen's face was a mix of utter joy at the severity of the sentence and indescribable pain, as she acknowledged to the media that no sentence would ever bring her daughter back. I have to wonder if Jerome's actions that day were partially aimed at hurting Hester. She'd left him to stay with her aunt and taken their child with her. Was the rape and murder of Chamonix perhaps his way of exacting the ultimate revenge? Although on its own, Chamonix's story is worthy of being told, I think it holds a very important lesson. Domestic violence is not just about the partner being directly abused. We have seen several cases of family murders being committed after years of abuse from a partner. Domestic violence is not just about the safety of the partner, it is about the safety of everyone around them too. When an abusive person is unable to harm the partner, they will lash out at those closest to them. Often abusers see this as the ultimate form of punishment. You might be alive, and I might be in jail, but you will live with this pain forever. I think this story also underpins how, despite the huge strides that have been made in educating people around sexual assault, we still have a very long way to go. The fact that Hester could not initially acknowledge that what had happened to her was rape, and the fact that countless people continue to be subjected to this on a daily basis in their own homes, is horrific and unacceptable. I am grateful to Judge Henny for pointing out that there is no need to ask why Hester did not leave Jerome. She is not the one at fault here. Instead of asking why she didn't leave, why she didn't lay charges, why the family allowed this man around their child, and why the community did not do something, let's rather just ask, why Jerome America did what he did, because he did it. Hester, her family and her community are not at fault. Jerome America is the only one with any blood on his hands. He raped the woman that loved him. He broke her down emotionally and abused her physically. Then, when she took a stand, he raped and murdered her 10-year-old sister. He lied in court. He refused to accept responsibility for his actions and refused to recognise that he had raped Hester. The severity of his crimes, as well as the fact that he does not accept responsibility for them means that any rehabilitation will be extremely difficult, if not impossible. For Magdalene Clausen and Sean Leavis, this means very little. Even if Jerome America stays in prison for the rest of his life, that will not bring their little girl back. They will have to live with the real life sentence. For Hester Clarson, who was just trying to be the best mother she could to her own child, the sentence does not erase her trauma. Her daughter was three years old when Jerome was imprisoned. One day she is going to ask about her father, and Hester is going to have to tell her the horrific truth and The ripples of trauma will continue as a little girl comes to terms with the fact that her father is a rapist and child killer. I can only hope that this little family unit is able to heal now that Jerome America is out of their life. I hope that Hester finds the strength to continue on and be the best mother she can be, so that her little girl can perhaps live the life of safety and innocence, that Chamonix should have had. Chamonix Clason was just 10 years old when her life was ripped away from her. She never got the chance to turn 11. Jerome America made sure of that. She was deeply loved, sweet, kind, and confident. She should have celebrated her birthday with her family that Sunday. But instead, her killer bride meets that he knew she would never eat while her broken body lay just a few steps away discarded in a storeroom if you think about a battered adult female when you think about domestic violence perhaps you should also think about Shamonique Clarsen she is the unlikely face of domestic violence and her death is the result of an abuser who believed he had the right to take what he wanted regardless of the cost. Rest gently, Shamonique. Thank you for listening to episode 53, The Murder of Sharmonique Clarsen. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the platform you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. I'll be back next Friday with a Spotlight Minisode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon.